Partially Examined Life precognitions introduce philosophical topics for upcoming episodes to give you a few weeks to do the reading yourself. They also serve as quick, standalone summaries of the work. You can read more about these topics, get the works we cover, and listen to Partially Examined Life conversations at partiallyexaminedlife.com. Hey, this is Matt Teichman from the Elucidations Podcast. Today I'm doing a guest stint for the Partially Examined Life podcast. Very pleased to be here. And this is a precognition for the episode on an introduction to metaphysics by the influential French philosopher Henri Bergson. Right, so you're probably wondering, Henri who exactly? If this guy's so influential, how come I haven't heard of him? And the answer to that is he was hugely influential in the teens and 20s, both in the university system and among more popular audiences. But in the 30s and 40s, his influence waned and he was eventually kind of forgotten. And these days, if anybody's heard of him, they know him as a philosopher who had a theory of memory that was a big influence on the French post-structuralist Gilles Deleuze. And I think he's also known as uh, having put forth a theory of time that was a big influence on the great French novelist Marcel Proust. But anyway, he contributed to a wide variety of areas in philosophy, including the areas we would now call metaphysics, the philosophy of mind, the philosophy of action, philosophy of perception, ethics, philosophy of biology, philosophy of religion, aesthetics. I mean, he really contributed to the whole of philosophy. And philosophy wasn't carved up into these super specialist subdisciplines then kind of the way it is now. So An Introduction to Metaphysics was published in 1903, and it was intended to just to be an introductory walk through the big theme behind Bergson's philosophy. The theme is this tension between what Bergson calls intuition and what he calls analysis. What do these terms mean? Well, intuition is pretty close to what contemporary philosophers would call practical knowledge or know-how, and analysis is not that far off from what contemporary philosophers would call theoretical knowledge or knowledge that. Just to illustrate this distinction, maybe it's not that obvious, think about the example of juggling. Knowing how to juggle is basically just being able to juggle. That's all it is. To have practical knowledge of juggling is just having the ability to juggle. I think we all share this feeling that you can know how to juggle without necessarily having any theoretical knowledge of juggling. This is actually an autobiographical example because um, I learned how to juggle before I learned how to teach people to juggle. So let's go back to that time, back when I knew how to juggle, but I hadn't learned how to teach people juggling yet. Well, there's a lot of stuff that I was technically doing with my hands that I wouldn't have known about, that I wouldn't have known how to describe. For example, I wouldn't know that when you throw the first ball from your right hand, you wait till that's at the apex of the parabolic arc, then you move your left hand to the right and throw the second ball upwards under the first ball that's at the apex of the arc, and then after you move, throw that second ball up, you then move your left hand back the way it came, rightward in a circular motion so as to catch the first ball and so on and so forth. I didn't know any of that when I first learned how to juggle. I just kind of did it instinctively. And that's the idea of practical knowledge. Practical knowledge is knowledge about how to do something. And theoretical knowledge is knowledge about whether a statement is true. So that's what we should have in mind with this intuition analysis thing. Intuition, practical understanding, analysis, theoretical understanding. Bergson argues that intuitive understanding is sort of complete, whole, it's dynamic, it's something that happens in motion. So that's intuitive understanding. Analytic understanding, on the other hand, is incomplete. It's partial, and it's crucially static. So just to illustrate what the ideas are, let's talk about some examples. One of Bergson's favorite examples to discuss, this is a central example in what later became a field in philosophy known as the philosophy of action. Imagine moving your hand. Just a picture to yourself the last time you moved your hand. Okay, now imagine what an analysis of that hand movement might be. 
So imagine that you're somebody's like plotting the trajectory of your hand on a graph. Well, okay, I think there are a couple things we can say about this right off the bat. One is your actual arm movement is, as it were, infinitely detailed. It has millions of little nuances and subtleties and details to it. The graph is finitely detailed. A graph on the piece of paper or whatever just consists of a certain number of points. And, you know, if you keep zooming into that set of points on the paper, eventually it's going to start to get pixelated. But the movement itself has ever more detail to it to be uncovered. You might imagine us uncovering this detail more and more if we uh, shoot with a super-duper slow-motion camera and then a super-duper-duper slow-motion camera and so forth. The plot of the graph captures a lot of important facts about the movement, but it misses out on a lot of the little details. There's little, like, microscopic tremors in the movement. Another point to make about this plot of points on a graph is that it's static. The points themselves don't move. They just sit there on the page. But my hand, that was moving. This may seem like kind of a weird worry to have, but Bergson is very worried about this. So he thinks there's something philosophically fishy in general about claiming that an object in motion could ever occupy a point in space which can't move. So think about a point in space as like a 3D set of coordinates, right? The x-axis, the y-axis, and the z-axis. So those points, those are possible locations that a thing could occupy. Each of those is necessarily where it is. It can't, like the space can't move. Maybe things can move within the space, but the space itself can't move. So Bergson thinks there's something weird about that idea. He thinks there's something weird about a point in space that's necessarily motionless, but something moving could be occupying it. And as a result of his thinking that there was something weird about this idea, he actually developed a whole alternative theory of space based on some ideas of the 18th century philosopher Leibniz. Another example Bergson gives here is location. Imagine a city. I think he uses the example of uh, Notre Dame in Paris, but let's use an example from Chicago. I'm in Chicago. So take the Willis Tower, formerly known as the Sears Tower, and imagine a whole bunch of photographs I took of the tower. Now, the tower itself has infinite detail, kind of like the case with my arm movement. No matter how many photographs you take of the Willis Tower in Chicago, you can always take another photograph and reveal something new about it that wasn't in any of the photographs you took before. You can just go on taking photographs of it forever because it's infinitely complex. Any physical object at all is this, like, inexhaustible supply of information. We can keep observing it, doing tests on it, like, whatever, testing the acidity and the pH. We can bounce stuff off it. We can keep doing whatever your favorite thing to do with physical objects is. And keep learning new things about it. But now compare a photo of the Willis Tower. Well, the information in the photo is limited. The photo shows us the Willis Tower, for example, only from one angle. Maybe it only shows us one room. It's got finite resolution, so you can't zoom into the photo forever. Eventually, it's going to start getting pixelated or grainy, or depending on the kind of photo we're talking about. Maybe there are people over here in front of the camera blocking our view of the entrance, and so on and so forth. The general idea here is that if you proceed from the tower to the photograph, that involves a loss of information. No number of photographs of the tower, no matter how thoroughly you try to document it, would enable you to reconstruct the entire tower right down to every last detail. Another example Bergson discusses is time. There's time as we actually experience it, which is kind of this interconnected moving flow. And then there's time as we visually represent it. Think of the visual experience you might have of a ball bouncing up and down. And think for a minute about like just sort of the character of that experience. The character of that experience would be one where it's not really broken up into moments. It's every bit of the experience is like organically bleeding into the next. That's what our experience is really like, according to Bergson. But then compare that to a visual representation of the ball bouncing, right? Imagine what would happen if your iPhone camera recorded the ball bouncing up and down. Well, it would break the motion down into a series of static states of the world at different moments. We'll talk about one last analogy that Bergson discusses because it's kind of interesting and then we'll move on. On the one hand, there's a person's personality. This is the thing that you learn about when you get to know them rife with all of its detail. And on the other hand, there's the breakdown of that person's personality into a list of psychological traits. 
I think once again, we have a strong intuition that no matter how long that list of psychological traits is, it's no substitute for the real thing, right? It's sort of a stylized abstraction. It's like any list you can come up with of psychological characteristics is sort of like a cartoon or a caricature of what the person's personality really is. All right, just to recap for a second, these are examples we've been looking at of different cases of coming to understand something intuitively versus coming to understand something via analysis. The term Bergson uses for a full-on concrete thing, rife in all of its detail and uniqueness and so forth, that's absolute. That's a sort of an adjective he uses to describe something in its full concrete detail. And the adjective he uses to describe these sort of more limited, finite mental intermediaries, the adjective he uses to describe them is relative. So absolute versus relative. And these relative things he also calls concepts. Now, one assumption that Bergson makes throughout the essay is that concepts are integral to the scientific method. So a scientist encounters some phenomenon and has to simplify the details of that phenomenon in order to bring it under the heading of a general law. So the scientific method sort of always involves abstracting away from some of the details of the particular case that you're observing. So one famous example of this is when Isaac Newton was observing physical things crashing into each other and falling and trying to figure out the rhyme and reason behind it, trying to figure out when they crashed into each other, how and why. In order to formulate a general law under which he could bring these particular things he observed, he had to pretend these things that he was observing were moving in a frictionless space with no air resistance. So that was like an idealizing assumption. One thing that's very much in the background during this entire discussion is the centrality of what Bergson calls concepts, these abstractions we've been talking about, to the scientific method. A second important feature of these concepts that Bergson observes is that they're strongly connected to our purposes. So yeah, on the one hand, a photograph of the Willis Tower is a limited, incomplete copy of the tower, but it's also limited in the sense that it represents a specific purpose or set of interests. I mean, in the case of a photo, it's hard to read purposes exactly off of it, but I think we can at least say that in the case of a photo, if somebody shows you a photo of the tower, they're interested in one side of it rather than another for some reason. Maybe they're interested in entering the building, in which case they'll show you the front entrance. Or maybe they're interested in helping you recognize it from the road, so they'll show you the side of it that faces the road. In any event, if somebody shows you a photograph of the tower, they're doing it with a specific set of interests in mind. So this tendency of ours to understand stuff in the world through these simplified abstractions, these kind of mental intermediaries, is tied to our having a purpose. So just to go back to our hand-moving case, if you break the movement of a person's hand down into a trajectory, including some set of points in 3D space from here to here, that is a limited perspective on the movement because there are dimensions of the movement that are being left out. But it's also a limited perspective because breaking down the movement of the hand is only useful for a specific set of purposes. For instance, breaking down the movement of a person's hand into a set of points on a graph might be useful for a robot who is trying to reproduce the movement of the hand to do the same thing. But it wouldn't be useful for a person who is trying to reproduce the movement of the hand to do the same thing, right? Something else will be required to show a person how to do the same hand movement. You're not going to give them a bunch of XYZ coordinates. The upshot of this is that conceptually analyzing something is connected to exploiting it, finding a use for it, kind of like mining it for some sort of practical value. That's what underlies analysis. That's what underlies this use of concepts. Okay, great. We got these two modes of understanding things, the intuitive and the analytic. Now what do we want to say? Well, Bergson is concerned that often we mistake the concept for the thing itself. We sort of mix them up. So we go back to the Wills Tower example for a second. Maybe if the photos were taken with like a really fancy camera, and there are really a ton of them, they're like a million photos. Maybe if they were taken with a really nice camera, we might find them really compelling and just kind of forget that there's more there than is in the photos. Or to go back to the arm movement example, we might be so impressed by the accuracy of the 3D motion capture machine that people at Pixar use to record my hand movement or whatever, 
that we forget there's more going on in the hand movement besides it's having passed through this set of static points. This is Bergson's worry. We confuse these like simplified conceptual copies of things that are useful for our minds with the things that they're copies of, the real particular concrete things, the things that are infinitely full of detail. What's the solution? It's not quite what you're expecting. So you might expect that since Bergson is worried that sometimes we think we've understood a particular concrete thing when all we're really doing is understanding a conceptual copy of it, you might think that since that's the big worry here, the answer is, well, let's just abandon analysis and replace everything with intuition. Let's stop doing all analysis and just be intuitive all day. We wouldn't be committing this fallacy, and we'd be knowing things in their entirety. Our knowledge would be perfect. There would be nothing lacking in it. Isn't that better? No, but that's not the answer he proposes. So he's not one of these anti-science, anti-technology figures who thinks, well, we should just give up on all scientific theories because they're these reductive abstractions, and what we should do is we should replace this form of understanding with a superior form of understanding. Not the approach he takes. One reason for that is that he isn't even completely sure that intuitive understanding is always possible. Maybe it's sometimes possible, but not clear that it's always possible. I mean, the only case in which he's absolutely positive that we do it is the case of self-knowledge. So my own arm movement, that's something that I can understand intuitively. That's something I just have self-knowledge of. But that's the one paradigm case of intuitive knowledge. Maybe we have it in other cases, but that remains to be seen. Another problem with going that route is that he just thinks that the analysis of concrete things into these abstract mental copies is integral to how our minds work. Our minds are such as to want those abstract mental copies. These are the tools that our minds use to reason. That's just the way our minds are built. It's unavoidable. So that solution is not going to work. What are we going to do about the fallacy then? Well, Bergson proposes that the solution to the fallacy lies in the role that we give these abstractions in our lives. So it's the fallacy of mistaking the incomplete mental copy of something for the thing itself. That's unavoidable in a way because our minds are built to make use of these incomplete mental copies. And that in turn, because we're living beings and as living beings, we have purposes. So as things with purposes, we have to use these concepts because concepts arise out of purposes. Nonetheless, we can sort of struggle against this inevitability in two ways. So every once in a while, Bergson thinks we can have brief flashes of intuitive insight that lead us to sort of reconfigure these abstract concepts in terms of which we understand the world, sort of restructure them so that we um, view the world through a different kind of lens. The second thing that we can do besides having these flashes of insight is recognize them. We can take a critical step back from these conceptual intermediaries that we make use of all the time and just remind ourselves that they're contingent, they're accidental. They only took the particular form they did because somebody was trying to trace out the details of some intuitive insight, but they could just as well have taken on a different form. So this struggle to sort of constantly remind ourselves about these sort of two aspects of our faculty of understanding, that's just what Bergson thinks philosophy is. It's the effort we make with our minds to kind of travel back and forth between understanding things intuitively and understanding them analytically or conceptually. So you can think of all this as sort of a cautionary note to be, as it were, responsible in your formal theory building. So yeah, we're creatures who make sense of the world by building these formal theories of it. It's just that those theories have limitations as well as virtues, and we can keep both the limitations and virtues of these formal theories in view if we kind of periodically remind ourselves that the formal theories have their origins in a pre-theoretical form of understanding. So that's Bergson's proposed way of dealing with this dilemma. I hope that gives you a flavor for what the essay is all about, and uh, I hope you enjoy reading it. Thanks for tuning in.